Well, welcome everybody to the latest in our Ralph Miliband program series on movement, protest and change. My name's Robin Archer and I'm the director of the Ralph Miliband program. And it's my great pleasure tonight to introduce Laurie Penny, um, who is going to speak to us um, about a number of themes that she's been working on for some time. Uh, Laurie was a student first uh, at uh, Brighton, I think, and then at Oxford, and she's carved out... Well, she's, I, I think she's carved out a unique public um, profile for herself um, with trenchant critique and columns, um, both about contemporary controversies but also about issues of sort of enduring human concern. And she's written for a number of uh, different publications. She's, she's written for journals like Red Pepper and The Morning Star, but also The Guardian. And she's um, been a columnist both at the New Statesman and at The Independent, and, and she's now a contributing editor at The New Statesman. Well, I don't know, some of you may have seen she's got a, a, an amazing blog called Penny Red, um, which was shortlisted a couple of years ago for the Orwell Prize, which you may know is one of the most prestigious prizes for political writing in the United Kingdom. And she's written a number of books as well. I'll just uh, tell you three of them. Meat Market, um, Female Flesh Under Capitalism, Penny Red, uh, Notes from a New Age of Dissent, and Discordia, which is written with uh, Molly Crabapple, subtitled Six Nights in Crisis Athens. Well, in her blog, uh, Laurie Penny describes herself as, and here I've got it, uh, as a journalist, author, feminist, socialist, utopian, general reprobate and troublemaker. Um, and she says that she lives in London where, she says, she can be found mainly eating toast and trying to set the worlds to right. So I ask you to join me tonight in welcoming our speaker, Laurie Penny. Hello. Um, so the, um, the L- first I wanted to thank the LSE uh, very much for inviting me. It's a great honour. And uh, the title they put to me was uh, something about women and protest, which I've been thinking about a lot, obviously, over the past couple of years. And the main question I wanted to address today, if everybody's all right with that, is how does the women's movement, because we're hearing a lot about this nascent, re-emerging women's movement, how does that fit into the massive upsurge of protest and political activity we've been observing over the past couple of years. Um, so, um, just see if I can work out the PowerPoint. Here it goes. It's disappeared. I thought it disappeared. There we go. Um, <laughs> so, does anybody know who that is? You can tell I used to teach um, younger kids. <laughs> Hands up. This is Louise Michelle. Who, is, who was a, um, one of the most prominent femme thoughts of the uh, Paris Commune in 1871. That picture was taken as one of a series of barricade f- photographs of, taken of people who were involved in the Paris Commune um, just before the enormous massacre that ended the brief, the brief period of the Commune. Um, she was 40 when that picture was taken. She was a school teacher and a revolutionary activist. Um, she spent most of her time... I, I don't know how they managed to wrestle her into that dress for the picture, but she spent most of her time dressed as a, in the National Guard outfit um, and fighting with the men, and this was considered very scandalous. Um, 
So in May 1871, at the height of the massacre that had destroyed the Paris Commune, the surviving women who'd fought on the barricades were marched through Versailles by the army of the French state. Uh, Most of them were dressed in the uniforms of the National Guard, like um, like Louise Michel. Um, The army stripped them to the waist, bearing their breasts, and this was designed to humiliate them and also to prove to other observers that these were women. You know, they weren't all this very, very shocking... Uh, women fighting with the men, this was considered a terrible indictment of just how evil socialism was. Um, the Paris Commune was a time of social and sexual revolution as well, and in the months after the massacre of the Commune happened, the French press went on a massive propaganda offensive to discredit the revolutionaries, and most of the way they did this was by attacking the women. Um, and using propagandistic images of the women involved in the commune to say, oh my gosh, this is very, very scandalous, all the free love and sexual openness that was going on and the gender-bending and the cross-dressing and women acting like men. One journalist at the time said that the most shocking thing about the Paris commune was how the women um, tucked up their skirts and passed them through their belts to pull machine guns down to the barricades. Um, this short skirt's clearly a problem even back then. Um, and uh, the, the word that people used at the time was petroleuse, les petroleuse, um, the, the petrol girls, basically. And the because uh, the idea was that the women had been involved in throwing Molotov cocktails and burning the basements of the grand houses during the last days of the uprising. And whether or not this was actually <coughs> true or made up has been the subject of endless academic debate um, in the years following that. And um, when I come back to the history, when I think about the history of women and protest, I always think about the Paris Commune rather than going back to the suffragettes because the idea that the women's movement and women's protest has, been, has ever been separate from working class protest and from, general, and from general socialist uprising really, really has to be thrown out. I was recently um, asked to do a series for the BBC about women and protests and the history of feminism. And I was telling them about, you know, women in the unions and women in the Paris Commune and women, you know, the dockers' strikes and the miners' strikes and how important women's role, women were to those strikes and those movements, which also contained within them seeds of a new kind of sexual revolution. And every time women asking for their own rights within that larger struggle... And these producers were looking at me like, what? We thought you were going to talk about the suffragettes? Um, The suffragettes were important, okay? But people always come back to the suffragettes as if this was the first and biggest and in some ways the last important women's uprising. And for me, this is a way in which feminism and the story of feminism, the history of women's movement, uh, of the women's movement, is decoupled from the story of workers' struggle and the story of socialism. And I think, particularly over the last 30 years, the story of women's liberation has been forcibly removed from any other story of human liberation. That's how we are forced to see it. There is this big protest and big movements for change going on here, and then here is the women's thing, which is not part of that other thing. It's the women doing their own thing, other thing on their own. And so... Um, Anybody remember this? Who was there? Gone. Somebody must have been there. <laughs> I know you. I know. I know. It's all right. Um, 
But um, this is uh, two years ago, well, two and a half years, two and a half years ago now, down at um, on the Horse Guards Parade, and I thought of uh, when I was thinking of the petrolers and the uh, the journalists decrying the women in their short skirts with their machine guns on the barricade. I thought about this. So this is a winter afternoon two years ago. I found myself in the Horse Guards Parade in London in the middle of this shrieking crowd of student protesters who were attacking a police van. Um, 25,000 strong march, mostly pupils aged 15, 16 and 17 who'd passed the word, word around, skip school, let's take a walk down to Parliament Square and demand fair access to, educa- to education. And, uh, and this is what happened next. Um, so, on one part of the protest, there were women, there were young girls everywhere, right? Young girls, um, mostly who, um, mostly in school uniform, wearing, um, jumping up to defend this police van, holding hands around it, aware of the cameras, and other young women in hoods and masks, like this one, kicking the van, sh- throwing themselves against the police, watching their friends get kidney punched and battened in the face. I was there, it was horrible. Um, and the next day's headlines in the Daily Mail, I've actually taken this, I'm sorry, I've taken this picture direct from the Daily Mail, and the headline above it said, Rage of the Girl Rioters. <clears throat> and under this picture was tagged with um, no respect, or only lacking respect. Was, and, and I think um, those of us who, who read that, a lot of us must have been thinking, oh, thank God, finally, finally, there's young women being, feeling brave enough not to show respect. So from the start of the, what I'm going to call the movement over the past two or three years, there have been women involved at every stage of the organising protest, young women on the marches. Um, and two years ago, at the height of the Egyptian revolution and in the wake of the British student movements, uh, Paul Mason, the journalist, wrote that the archetypal fa- facilitator, organiser in these new movements is an educated young woman. Um, taking the lead, speaking, and, um, and that was true. Um, on every march and in every occupation, in those first weeks and months of the new movement, certainly in the UK, young, smart, educated women and girls were there as spokespeople, as facilitators, as leaders. And in Egypt and Tunisia, there were women marching alongside the men to bring down the old regimes. And then a year later, the first incarnations of the Occupy movement appeared to be committed to the equal representation of women and minorities within their ranks. And then there was the backlash. And I've, it's been massively disheartening to see this happening over the past couple of years, to see the deep discomfort with feminism, deep discomfort with issues of women's rights and sexual violence within both the Occupy movement, the student movement in the UK, in Egypt, women getting raped and assaulted in Tahrir Square, this mad debates within the parliament about whether or not women are allowed to, about women's status within marriage. Um, And so, for a little bit of background, I've been, I've spent the past couple of years covering the student movements here, the anti-austerity movements here, and then travelling around various bits of the world as far as I could get, covering the Occupy movement and the protests in Europe um, I most recently went to Greece, which is where I wrote um, Discordia, my last book. But this, um, this is an interesting one. Does anybody remember this picture? It became very iconic at the time. This was the first day, well, actually it was the third day of Occupy Wall Street, um, when this picture hit the media. First, with Occupy Wall Street, people thought it was going to be a flash in the pan, right? 
Even the people who went down there thought it was going to be a flash in the pan, which is, just proves how these, suddenly these spaces can open up from nowhere. This is one of the things that helped get media attention. Because on one of the first marches, a police officer who was... Um, it was uh, the, the, the press reported his name very dutifully as um, Anthony Bologna. But everybody knows he was called Tony Bologna, right? <laughs> and, and so anyway, Tony Bologna... Um, <laughs> uh, launched this vicious pepper spray attack on three or four women who happened to be standing at the front of the march. And these were the images that went around the world, women screaming on the sidewalks outside Wall Street, peaceful protesters. And this idea that, oh my gosh, women have been attacked, vulnerable women need our help. This was women's perceived role within the movement from the start. Everybody was comfortable with that, right? What they were less comfortable with were things like this. Um, so, from very quickly within the Occupy movement, which refused for both good and bad reasons to articulate any concrete demand, it was a very open space, women's groups were down there saying, women, we're here, women are the 99%, saying take women seriously, take women's work seriously, take women's unpaid labour seri seriously, take sexual violence seriously. And they met with varying levels of respect, varying levels of attention. From about a couple of months into the Occupy protests in both in New York, in Chicago, where I visited, I went to various sites in the US, and in the UK, stories about sexual violence and sexual assault seemed to, began to emerge. And this was problematic. Immediately, the, people, the more media-savvy people within the movement started spinning and saying, oh, no, this isn't happening. And the attempt of those movements to deal with sexual violence was, um, was very interesting in a lot of ways. It's, um, I remember in Occupy Wall Street there were a couple of really curious flashpoints. Personally for me, I think the first day I went down there, clearly discussions about what is and is not appropriate personal space had already taken place. And um, I remember I took my backpack off and I plonked it down on a table where a guy was making posters. I didn't see them. And this young man, um, enormous young man, about six foot five, and really stood up and I was like, oh God, oh dear. And, and he said to me, I'm so sorry I was in your space. I'm so sorry. Have I made you feel uncomfortable? Are you okay? Are you okay? And I was like, dude, I put my bag on your posters. It's, it's okay. It's fine. And so this, this guy, like, really trying hard to... And, not, and, you know, almost overcompensating. And then, um, as these stories became impossible to ignore, and as women coming to the organising teams, women are also involved in the organising teams, saying, we have experienced this and that instance of sexual assault, we are feeling uncomfortable, the solution was to make the safer spaces tense and have safe spaces working groups. So not to deal with sexual violence as a whole within the camps, but to have these spaces where women could go and... In, um, in both in London and in, in the New York Occupy, they decided to have um, safer spaces security teams, most of which were made up of uh, enormous ex-Marines with big dogs. And so these guys, these massive guys, often in military fatigues, would be walking around going, do you feel safe? <laughs> I was like, yes. And it's like, I mean, clearly people trying... But, but getting and, and this is how this is how we kind of fumble towards a better understanding of how sexual violence works. But with the dissolution of the camps um, under massive sustained police assault, 
there was more and more of a fragmentation of what remained of the movement and what still remains of the movement over questions of sexual violence. I've seen, I mean, I can't go into specific stuff, but I've seen hacking communities, I've seen structured socialist Leninist parties and anarchist groups. I've seen all of those different types of groups completely fall apart over questions of women's rights and sexual violence, absolute inability to deal with it. And um, now, as in 1968, social and cultural revolutionary movements have found themselves absolutely unable to cope with the intrusion of women's liberation into their understanding of the world. And the fight against sexism and sexual violence and, and domestic drudgery and social subjugation, right now, I see it tearing apart the left. Right? And, and I think most of you know what I'm talking about. I can see some nods. I can now see some more nods. It's, um, yeah, you know what I'm talking about, especially if you're involved even a tiny bit in activism in the UK or in the US. You know how hard it is to get women's issues taken seriously and how hard it is on the other side of the spectrum to get the established women's groups to take socialism seriously and take anti-austerity seriously. There has been an enormous decoupling of women's protest or what is seen as women's protest from the broader aspects of political struggle going on right now. Um, and so there is, I believe there has been a big reawakening of women's consciousness and women's anger over the past, let's say, five years and more in the last couple of years. And there has also, at the same time, been an enormous consciousness raising about socialism, about anti-austerity, about personal and structural liberation, but those have not, all, they've not always been, um, forgive me, easy bedfellows. And um, particularly on the internet, which is where we go to organise, um, it's not the reason we organise, with all these uh, headlines over the past couple of years saying, Facebook is causing revolution. Um, it's, it's not that simple, guys. But um, the internet is certainly public space. It's absolutely where we go to organise and form movements and make communities happen and the internet is becoming a less and less safe space for women. Um, I don't think anybody can disagree that that's happening right now. I almost had to not come to this talk, actually, because I had various online stalkers threaten to come and, uh, not, and disrupt or hurt me, and it was, it was very scary. And anybody, any woman with a public profile online faces this kind of thing. People are spiteful, violent, intimidating Women are being chased off public spaces online, chased out of political spaces online. Women across the spectrum, but particularly women on the left. Um, and it's, not, um, it's become this trench of violence and frustrated sexual hatred. And I feel that online is the place where it's most obvious that um, women's space within the movement, whatever this movement is, is still contested. Right. I had this other picture of um, a mate of mine at Occupy Wall Street. It's, um, this is, uh, for me, this is one of the key pictures of women's place within Occupy, within Occupy Wall Street. This is one of, one of the most important organisers. Um, so here we go. Um, I want to talk a little bit about this explosion in women's anger and women's consciousness. And this is, has anybody seen this picture? I bet you have. Um, well, um, you, you probably have. It's one of the stock pictures used to illustrate any story about women and sex. Over there. This is from, um, I think this one is from Getty Images, that's why you see the cross over it. It's, um, you, 
you know, papers can go and buy these pictures in, in bulk whenever they have a picture about rape or women having too much sex or contraceptives or anything they want to illustrate. These are, you can actually, there's a blog called Stop Pictures of Women Looking Remorseful After Sex. <laughs> Look, here's another one, here's another one. <laughs> but there are loads of these things. So, <laughs> oh, yeah, there we go. Like, there are loads of them. And uh, people with makeup smeared down their face look so sad. So sad. You know, how, how, how could she have done it? What was she thinking? And, uh, but um, this is... I, I was trying to find a picture of, um, of how to illustrate the, um, the sexual counter-revolution that I believe is going on right now, and I just could not bring myself to uh, put a picture of Mitt Romney's face and, and inflict that on you guys, because I, I never want to see it again, honestly, <laughs> ever. I'm so glad that's over. Um, so... At the moment, there is a massive backlash taking place across the West, not just in America and in Ireland, also in the UK, across Europe, against women's sexual and social freedom. The Republicans over the last, um, over the last two years of the campaign season absolutely obsessed with curtailing access to abortion, access to contraception, there are fight, fight backs against abortion rights and even contraception are coming down the line in the UK. Everywhere we hear this message that sexualisation is what's bad for women. This is what's hurting women. Women are hurting and this is the reason why. It's um, actually just today a senior member of the Labour Party has given a speech to the Fabian Women's Network about this sexualisation <coughs> idea because now the Labour Party has realised that, oh, we need to get in on this sexualisation thing. You know, clearly, this is where the Tories are building their ideological camp in this window-twitching, pearl-clutching, conservative um, backlash against women's sexual freedom. We've got to get in there because you know, that's clearly where the debate's happening. There is nobody on the left, certainly not in the mainstream left, making a case for women's sexual freedom and women's sexual power. This idea of this word sexualisation, I hate it. I wish we could ban it. Because not that I want to ban words, I'm not a Leninist, sorry, sorry. Um, <laughs> but, um, but I really feel like we need to lay off using that one because it, it implies, doesn't it, that sex isn't something that women do, it's something that's done to us. And, and you have, so you have this pure virginal girl and eventually at some point she is sexualized, And then it's all over. You know, and then, but that, that really is what the word implies, and that's how we still think about women, particularly young women. And, for example, um, Sandra Fluke, right? Sandra Fluke, who stood up at the Democratic National Convention and said, I deserve to have contraception. I can't believe we're still having this discussion in 2012, as was, and now in 2013, we're having a discussion of whether women deserve the right to contraception. But Sandra Fluke... 30-year-old law student saying, I deserve contraception because, oh, I'm getting it for my friend who has polycystic ovary syndrome, you know, that's, that's why I need it, the pill. And, you know, and then we have, you have the Democrats and, Democrats and women's rights advocates saying, oh, these women, they, they need the pill because they're good mothers. They need the pill because, you know, they're sick and they need to control it. What about where is the person on the left saying, we need the pill because we want to fuck like guys do? 
That's why women need the pill. Women need the pill because we want sexual and social equality with men, and that's the baseline. All right? Nobody on the left at the moment is brave enough to come out and make that case because of this sexual counter-revolution that's going on, because of a back, massive backlash against women's freedom. This is the reason that, and I don't know what you guys' personal experiences experiences have been, but the general culture within Occupy, within the student movements, has not been, there has not been a coterminous sexual and gender revolution as, as began to happen in 1968. There has been a massive chilling effect, in fact. People scared of talking about those things, of experimenting with those things. It's very difficult to talk about because obviously everybody's experiences are different. But there was even, within the student movements, when I was part of them, and when I was initially started to report on them, I had people say to me, you, you can't talk about people having sex in, in the occupations. And I think Cambridge, the, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but the Cambridge occupation actually had a no-sex rule, because that would have looked bad for the press. You know, as if you, know, you get 50, 21-year-olds in a building for a week... What are they, they going to do? I, 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 really, I actually didn't make it down there. I was in a different occupation, but I have no idea how this was enforced. Possibly, possibly they had the Marines down. Are oh, you feeling safe? Like, like, I don't know where those guys came from. So, um, and this... I mean, I keep repeating the phrase sexual counter-revolution just because I want to drum it into people's heads. But I believe that... Young women today, and women in general, but particularly young women, are vital to the protest movements and to the enormous renaissance that is on the brink of happening because we know better than anybody else what it is to grow up with the implication to accept the world as it is, don't we? I mean, we know what it is to grow up being told that this is as good as it gets. And if you're miserable, if you're unhappy, it's your fault, you're sick, you're weird, you need treatment... You're just difficult. Um, so in the 90s and the early 2000s, people like me and my baby sisters were raised, like most girls our age, to believe that we could do anything a man could do. And uh, the barriers were all gone, and all the, all the, all the hurdles that had kept previous generations confined to the home and in the cl- and cowed in the classroom, they've got no meaning for us now. And this desperate, wishful thinking has only just begun to be torn apart. We are not able as a society right now to talk about women's rage, which is why I subtitled this. Um, I'm sorry that she's still up there. The next, by the way, um, but actually, this is the kind of picture of female emotion that is allowed in the press right now. We are comfortable with talking about women's trauma. We're comfortable with talking about women's distress. We're not comfortable politicising that or talking about women's anger. Um, some, just some statistics about women's experience of trauma and mental health issues right now. Women are 2.5 times more likely to experience depression, anxiety, and disorders like that, even, even when you adjust for the fact that men report these things much less. One in three women between the ages of 16 and 42 have taken antidepressants for a significant period of time. Um, and half of those women have taken them for over five years. Uh, one in five women experience eating disorders. That's um, about ten times as many as the number of men who experience eating disorders. So I actually wanted to do a hands-up here 
Like, how many people, and I'm aware this is not a representative sample, but how many people know someone, know a woman who is experiencing this kind of distress? Just hands up if you know someone. You can put your hand up if you... Thanks, yeah, there we go. You can put your hand up if you are someone as well. Nobody's, nobody's going to know. Um, it's, uh, this kind of distress is something that we were talking about, that there are endless news stories about it, and people have been talking about it. How are we going to save the young girls? They're clearly so miserable. Why? Why? What's, what's the matter with them? Um, the solution that the, um, that the, the now government minister, uh, Lim Featherston, and people like her have come up with is um, you just need to buy a different kind of body cream, basically. <laughs> then it's fine. I, I'm, 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 I'm paraphrasing, but not really, because actually the, uh, the anti-airbrushing campaign and the body, positive body image campaign, which is the government's flagship let's save the young girls thing, apart from anti-sexualisation, so no sex but Dove products <laughs> is the idea. Um, the, they gave the prize this year to Dove, who do the um, real beauty ads, the solution to which is to you know, buy, buy a tub of body butter and then, it, then it, you'll be fine, don't worry, love. Um, it's, um, and the, the solution is to just tell women they're okay, tell them they're pretty, and then maybe they'll calm down. <laughs> that's, this is, seriously, this, that's as far as we've got. Yeah, it's like, I know, it's absolutely crazy. Um, and we're told that we're crazy. And women who, um, I actually, I'm going to have personal experience. I, I've just got a note, am I going to talk about this here on my stead? But I think I will. Um, so I have personal experience of being treated for an eating disorder, which I talk about in my book. I was a lot younger than it was coming on 10 years ago now. But the orthodoxy within the medical establishment was that in order to make young women better from this kind of trauma, whatever it was, not eating, cutting, sleeping around, I uh, wish at that time. But, um, yeah, I, did, I didn't have any of the fun things. <laughs> but um, what the solution was to um, encourage us to you know, dress more prettily, accept that, you know, our womanly bodies, get a boyfriend if we could, and, you know, just be nice, be good. And this was a sign of progress. And I saw, I, I was treated in an inpatient ward alongside a lot of other young women, and I saw everybody churned out um, of this sort of finishing school, basically, um, told that they were healthy when, you know, just kind of polished up a bit, fattened up a bit, and well, obviously they were sick and they needed to eat more. That's not, um, that's not up for question. But the this sort of indoctrination into this proper, into accepting their role in society as women, because obviously medical orthodoxy is that women become distressed when they don't accept their role. There's actually a thing called um, adjustment disorder. So you are disordered. You have not properly adjusted to whatever your role is. You need these medications and this talking therapy. Please, please don't go and protest. Please don't notice the massive structural problems going on. Um, these, this, the idea that if you are distressed, if you're unhappy with your social role, that's your problem. That's not society's problem. It's not the role that's the problem. Everywhere we are told not to question women's social role, not to question the different division of labour, not to question sexual violence, gendered violence. And um, it's only, um, it took me ages to, I mean, first, you know, getting better was one thing, but then it took me another five or six years just to get over this idea. Thank God I rediscovered the feminist movement because you see women 
in these political movements, it gives us space to explore different kinds of realities and how appropriate that within these spaces that are opening up, women have been asking for their new worlds as well. It's not just we want a different kind of financial system, but we want a different kind of deal for women, finally. We want a different kind of gendered role. Um, so how we do time? Um, 20 minutes. Oh, brilliant. Um, <coughs> so um, I'm going to come on to this chick. Yeah. <laughs> Nadia Tolkonikova. Um, I think I've pronounced that right. Anybody Russian in the audience? Let's go with that. All right. Um, she is a member of Pussy Riot. She's the most photogenic member of Pussy Riot, which is why you've, which is why you've seen her picture most often. But she's also brilliant, right? Here is her statement. And, um, and I, want, I wanted to come onto this directly because there is an enormous and important link between women's trauma as experienced individually on a gendered basis and women's political rage, women's desire to change the world on a broader level. And so this is what, uh, this is what Nadia says in her closing statement to the court in Moscow. We are absolutely not happy with, we've been forced into living politically by the use of coercive strong-arm measures to handle social processes, a situation in which the most important political institutions are the disciplinary structures of the state. Nor are we happy with the enforced passivity of the bulk of the population or the complete domination of executive structures over the legislature and judiciary. Moreover, we are genuinely angered by the fear-based and scandalously low standard of political culture, which is constantly and knowingly maintained by the state system and its accomplices. Smart lady, also a woman who was part of an art collective which two years earlier was on the front page of every Mos Moscow newspaper which, was, which had any anti-censorship controls fucking in a gallery whilst heavily pregnant. This is the kind of women's rebellion and women's popular protest that we're just starting to see little bits of. So this is the Pussy Riot story for anybody who's not been watching the news for a year. Um, <coughs> so on February the 21st, 2012, five young women in balaclavas, there you go, and scandalously short dresses broke into the pulpit in Moscow's Cathedral of Christ the Saviour, where women are strictly forbidden to enter. They carried not guns, but guitars, and they played a three-minute punk song calling out the hypocrisy of the church's collaboration with the Putin regime and demanding that the Virgin Mary become a feminist. <coughs> Today, two of these women, including Nadia, are imprisoned in Russian, Russian penal colonies for, colonies for daring to challenge the authority of the church and the state. Um, Pussy Riot, it's important to understand that they're not really a rock band. They're, they've not released an album. They're, they're the idea of a rock band. And in this age of overproduction and hesitancy, <clears throat> what we need is the idea of a rock band rather than an, another shit indie band. Um, the song, has anybody read the lyrics to the song Punk Prayer, which is the one they got arrested for? It's, it's absolute protest poetry. It's some incisive screaming about gay pride and the collusion of church and state, and the footage shows them playing it in their balaclavas and those bright tights they wear. And you watch it and you think, yeah. And it takes you back to this time on the edge of memory that never really existed, when this momentary idea that somehow fierce music and brave women can save culture from itself. And 
when women in London... Look at this book. I actually took this picture myself on the uh, Pussy Riot protest. There were lots of riot babies there. Um, I don't think this one really knows what's going on. But <coughs> I mean, some people dress their babies as Kate Middleton, so there you go. Um, <laughs> but um, when women in London and New York and Berlin and Delhi pull on the balaclavas and scrawl free Pussy Riot on the walls, they're not just calling from the release of these artists um, for daring to make fun of the patriarchs of modern Russia. They're making sure that Pussy Riot are the ones whose victory is certain by amplifying the rebellion in their own hearts. And we're talking about our countries as well, our lives as well, wherever patriarchs are in power and wherever women and queers and the young and the poor are punished for stepping out of line. Um, I came to anti-capitalism myself through feminism and I first came to it as a child who uh, too young to understand what either of those things really meant, but it always seemed logical to me that the root of women's oppression was economic, and the root of economic oppression was capitalist. Sorry, I'm going back through my notes because I've, um, I've changed it around a little bit. Um, but <coughs> and right now, um, it's really... We're told, aren't we, that women have come far enough. And it's important to have this kind of... It's important to have perspective. So at my age... 50 years ago, at my age, um, 26, my grandmother was a recent immigrant with five kids and another one on the way. And she was shackled by religion to a violent alcoholic husband who she had married in wartime to escape the island where she lived. And she wouldn't have called herself a feminist. But feminism was what began, has begun to win for me and my sisters. I mean, my actual sisters, not my theoretical sisters. Those two. Um, the birthright of all women in the 21st century, which is the one, the birthright that women, and sorry, the birthright that conservatives across the world are actively trying to confiscate right now, which is the right to freedom from domestic drudgery and sexual violence, the right not to have to rely on a man to keep you, the right to live your life without worrying whether or not you're pretty enough or well-behaved enough to stop your boss or your husband getting sick of you, the right to be socially, sexually, financially independent. And I wonder if... The yearning I get when... Is anybody else here a sci-fi nerd? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I watch a lot of Battlestar Galactica. And um, I find myself... Everyone loves Starbuck. I love me some Starbuck. But, um, <laughs> sorry. And, but when, does anybody get that feeling when you watch battles in space? All those films of space battles when you think, oh, I'm not quite sure what it is I'm wanting. And... That kind of that impossible yearning is what I imagine that my grandmother and women her age felt when they watched people like me going to university and having boyfriends before marriage and travelling to other countries and dancing all night and wearing your short skirts. And for her, and for women like her, my life and our lives are science fiction. It's weird and it's frightening and it's enabled by technology. And I see women my age handling it as casually as an extra on original Star Trek might handle one of those palm computers that looked exciting in the 1970s and now they look like Nokia smartphones from 1999. Um, we handle this casually, don't we, because we have forgotten, we're encouraged to forget the history of women's liberation and how important class and money and power are to the history of women's liberation. We handle it because we are unable to conceive of a better world anymore. <coughs> We've been told that this is the best we're going to get <coughs> And there's no such thing as better than this for women, for queers, for people who don't want the marriage, monogamy, 
mortgage structure of our lives, not that we can afford any of that anymore. <laughs> really, like, if there's anything that's going to change that, it's the fact that none of us can actually afford to live like that anymore. So, um, feminism has one social mobility for a small minority of women, but not social justice for all of us, not yet. And the women's movement in the past 30 years and more has been duped into accepting that limited social mobility is a trade-off for a truce over the real issues of economic and social justice for all women, everywhere. <clears throat> right now across the world, austerity is hitting women hardest. And this is not an accident. We, we always say that oh, austerity is hitting women hardest, as if this is just an accident. This just happened. Austerity is happening accidentally, we don't have any control over it, and it happens to be hitting women. No, it's deliberately targeted at women, it's particularly at poor women. When they talk about chatting, cutting child benefit, child benefit used to be loan, known as mother's allowance. It is a benefit specifically designed within the original structures of the welfare state in this country to facilitate women's independence from men under the current economic post-Fordist capitalist system. That's what's being taken away right now. Women's ability to live independently from men is being taken away. Women's ability to raise children independently or not, women's ability to live independently is being threatened directly and deliberately. And um, the Minister for Work and Pensions, uh, Ian Duncan Smith, recently, I'm sorry, I, I, I feel like Voldemort whenever I see him. <laughs> I, can't, I know I'm, like, I'm a proper political commentator now, so I can't, I'm not meant to react like that. But I see him on Twitter and I'm just... Um, anyway, he recently made a speech saying that the biggest reason the British economy is in trouble is not to do with corporate tax avoidance or irresponsible banks or the decision to sell off the welfare state to pay for the mistakes of the financial elite. The problem is women, poor women and their children, because they're reproducing without husbands to support them. How dare they? Hussies. Whenever right-wing governments want to distract attention from their frenzied evisceration of the social contract, they point to women and attack women, particularly poor women and women of colour, and tell us that those women are the real problem. This is happening in the UK, it's happening in America, it's deeply entwined with the sexual backlash against women's freedom, with this sexualisation thing that they're using to distract us from actual social inequality, with attacks on abortion rights and contraception. It's all connected. Somewhere on the long, along the line, we seem to have forgotten how far we've got to go. Women have made enormous strides in the past hundred years, but we need to get beyond the idea that we're supposed to be grateful that we are permitted a warped sort of equality in a fundamentally unequal labour market. Because feminism isn't about telling women how to live or who to love or what not to wear. It's about imagining a future where gender isn't destiny and sexism isn't rampant and working to achieve that future. So here we go. Yeah, slut walks. Who was on the slut walk? Oh, come on. Yeah, yeah, great, great. Slut walks were brilliant. And um, again, it's, um, I was lucky enough to, I was lucky enough to speak at the slut walks um, last year. And the slut walks for me were, they seemed like the beginning of a enhanced consciousness about sexual freedom and social freedom for women. Because suddenly you had... Young women and old women, women everywhere across the world reacting suddenly to this idea that we should not wear short skirts if we don't want to be raped, that police officer in Toronto saying suddenly it seemed like enough. That was it. That's just the last little thing. And there was this massive upsurge of women and men all over the world. And it was like 
it was like nothing else but a pride march. A pride march is what it was, about the acceptance and fighting for women's right to be sexual, to live freely like men do, to not live in fear of rape and sexual violence. <coughs> and um, the newspapers didn't report this enough, but it was massively keyed in to anti-austerity, to anti-capitalism, as the feminist movement originally always was. Um, there we go, it was joyful and it was brilliant and it is absolutely an indictment on how inadequate bourgeois middle-class feminism has become that there were columnists and organisers across the UK and the US saying, we, we're not sluts, we don't want to be sluts. You know, what, what are they saying? You know, this is disgraceful, we, we're nice women. No, 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 slut is a really important word. I'm so glad people are taking it back in the way that we took queer back because the original meaning of the word slut was a domestic drudge, a servant. The idea that, you know, we, that women who are underpaid and low-paid and working as servants, the idea of slut pride is also about working-class pride. It's about taking something that is tossed to us and made to make us feel small and ashamed and taking that back and saying, no, this is how we want to live our lives. We need to be able to do it freely without punishment. And, um, yeah. Anybody know who that is? <coughs> Anybody recognise her? It's, that's Selma James, who... Um, is the leader of the, who originated the Wages for Housework campaign back in 1972 um, and has been active in the anti-racist and women's movements for over 50 years. I was, actually, I was lucky enough to get to interview her last week. Actually, I've got that in the New Statesman this week if you want to read it or just read it online. No, I didn't say that, but that's fine. That's what I do. Um, so she, Selma James is one of these people whose ideas are coming back into the fashion because what she's always said is that money and economics and power are what the women's movement is really about. That's what sexual freedom is about. That's what gender revolution is about. You can't decouple it from ideas of working people's rights, of working women's rights, and feminism has lost its way if we think it's all about personal liberation. Um, I'm aware that I'm coming up to the end of my time, so I hope we can talk more about this in the questions. But what I wanted to say more than anything, was that there is a renewed consciousness amongst women, young and old, particularly young, across the Western world today. And that renewed consciousness is happening at the same time as the emergence of a renaissance of thought about liberation and justice within the organised left and the disorganised left, the new left. And... Neither of those things are going to win unless we can understand that it is the same fight, that women's right to personal freedom, to structural freedom, to freedom from violence and freedom from drudgery and poverty is the fight. It is socialism. It is anarchism. And until we understand that, we're not going to get any farther than we have now, which is the reason that the left is currently falling apart under its own inability to deal with issues of gender and race. And I wanted to finish um, with a quote from Louise Michel. Actually, I wanted to show you this picture as well, because it's my favourite one I've taken on the, of, on the last year. This was during the Chicago Occupy protests when we were all running away from the CPD. Um, so Louise Michel, in her memoirs, uh, writes for, where she was exiled to New Caledonia after the Paris Commune. And she writes, Watch out for the old world on the day that the women say, That's enough. Watch out for the women when they rise up, disgusted with everything that's happened. Because on that day, 
the world will end and the new one will begin. Well, thank you very much for that wonderful talk. I'm going to start by just taking questions in ones, but if we end up having lots of questions, I'll take them in groups. Um, so can I just have an indication of who might like to start our questions off, please? Go on. You've please. been silenced by you. <laughs> Anybody? Ah, I see. Uh, this person with the red scarf. Just wait until the microphone comes, if you don't mind. So two short questions. Um, one, do you have any comment on the use of images of women and presentation of women as sort of the, um, uh, the, char the charismatic front pieces for protests where it's sort of no, no, be pretty and stand on the front line so the news photographers can get a picture of you mm -hmm. and, and don't actually try and change the issues? Um, and the other question is, what do you think a practical movement of resexualizing politics would look like for the left. Thanks. All right, so um, Images of Women on Protest is a gnarly one. Has anybody seen, did anybody see at the time that Tumblr, uh, Hot Chicks of Occupy Wall Street? It was, oh God, it was awful. It was just the, it was the absolute epitome of how women don't want to be seen on protest. Obviously, People who work for papers know that images of hot young girls in not very much sell. And that's what, if there's women, particularly women with like slogans written somewhere or holding up a sign wearing not very much, the cameras will rush over there and take pictures of that to put on the front cover. That doesn't mean that women themselves have power within the movement. It's not the same thing that women, images of women are powerful in the media that's not the same thing as saying women are powerful, either in the media or in the movement. In fact, um, I talk a lot about this in terms of uh, gender, gender uh, liberation and anti-sexism within the media because we have to understand that whilst we're fighting as well, people who are reporters or writers or editors or filmmakers, whilst we fight for the right to make media and create culture, we're also fighting to change a culture and uh, structure which is about which which believes that what women look like is more important than what we say and sorry is and what we and what we look like is more important than what we do so this hot chicks of occupy wall street thing some manichist on the internet just went down and took a bunch of pictures of um, quite good pictures of uh, young attractive women and, uh, and shot film of them. But what was interesting about that is that he, um, the film was set up so it was all these kind of slow motion Im images, you know, women with dreadlocks tossing their hair and adjusting their bra straps. And then he filmed them talking, but their words were faded out. And instead, you had the sort of slow motion pictures of them moving and, you know, the close-ups on the, on the boobs. And, and it was, you couldn't have made it clearer that what they were saying wasn't important. And, of course, when people pointed this out, there was an enormous, terrifying sexist backlash. Um, 
against anybody complaining, which is, in some ways, that was, the, that was only a couple of weeks after Occupy started out. That was, for me, that was the point when it all started to go wrong. And in terms of the resexualization of the movement, I don't know. Um, I, there, are, there are several things I could suggest, but I think this is um, PG-13. So <laughs> I think it's about people not being afraid to talk about feminism and talk about sexuality <coughs> within movements that they're a part of. People understanding that gender and sexuality are a vital part of whatever counterculture we're building. Um, people are just going to have to <coughs> experiment and see what works and understand that fighting conservatism, fighting censorship, fighting anybody out there who is using hatred of women and hatred of women's sexuality as a way to distract attention from austerity and, um, and neoliberal economic Armageddon, is, um, that's, it's part of the same fight. That's, that's all I can suggest. Okay, um, who would like to ask a question now? So we've got this woman over here. <coughs> Thanks very much. Um, I've got a lot of questions, but I'll just start with one. I'm wondering about, it just occurred to me then, um, why you were saying the use of women's bodies in mm-hmm. protests, like we've seen quite a lot in Egypt, for example, recently with women yep. getting naked, you know, to sort of defy the sort of yep. patriarchal paradigm, many of whom I can't help but notice actually do have perfect bodies and beautifully manicured pubic hair and all this sort of thing. And I, mm-hmm. I wholly support the whole slut walk thing and the yep. emphasis on sexual empowerment, but I'm wondering if you think that's actually constructive in some spheres, i.e. helping women progress in those mm-hmm. spheres of, like, as you well know, media and politics and academia, which are still so much boys' clubs, I mean, in Britain yeah. and elsewhere. So I'm wondering how those two kind of tie together as forms of progress. No, it's a really interesting one because, um, also, I mean, I, I love the naked blogger, okay? I love the Egyptian naked blogger. I think she's brilliant, and I think all power to her because she is fighting a culture which absolutely loathes any kind of sexual empowerment for women, and she is, she's doing something incredibly important. But um, I think it's what you're saying, where uh, the use of women's bodies as protest tools always seems to coincidentally involve women who are 22 and skinny and blonde. Um, that's, that's actually more the case when you look at something like Femin, um, where... All the, all the women who seem to get in the news from Femen with the brilliant slogans written on them, they're all the young, stereotypically attractive ones. And I feel like Femen and groups like it would be far more effective as an attention-getting thing if they allowed all kinds of women to get their kit off for justice. You know, it's you know, women of colour, women who are older, women who are larger, women who are disabled. It's not... but. I raised this recently at a meeting with, the, with some people involved in Femen, and they said to me, we have those women in the movement, it's just that nobody ever takes their picture, um, which, is, uh, which is interesting to me, because obviously there is, a, there is a fine line in negotiating how we use our bodies as political space, how we, how we understand our bodies as political space. Um, it's, and this is getting into some theory here, but it's the idea how we understand our ownership of our image and our body where um, we're, we're always told that we have to look a certain way and we have to conform to a certain ideal and spend our energy conforming to a certain ideal and that's meant to distract us and from the actual problems in our lives. It's, um, I think it would be far more helpful if there were... If, I mean, I, I'm always in favour of nakedness for justice, Okay. 
Like, I think, I think topless, uh, a meme called Topless for Communism went around last year, where I think, I think some of my friends in the protest movement went a bit mad. But they st- <laughs> there, there wasn't a lot to do, and they started turning up to parties topless for communism. And um, I think that I'd, I'm, not, I'm absolutely not in favour of censorship and of telling women, you know, cover up, you know, you're, you're not helping, you're just out there looking hot. I don't think that's helpful at all. I just wish that we could see a greater range of people getting involved in that because if, if the message we're trying to send is that sexual liberation <coughs> is only for the young and blonde and beautiful, then that's no sexual liberation worth having, is it, really? Disappoint me anyway. Okay. Um, we absolutely could take a couple of ones. We can even take more, but let's see. Who Go on. <laughs> okay, so can we have that woman with the stripy arms and the woman two in front of her? Hi. Um, I wanted to ask how you see the role of increased internet access and social media in future women's movements, especially in places where they may not be very used at the moment. And, and the woman in the aisle there. Um, just going back to um, that lady's question and some of the things that you said about mm. how women should look and in particular things like sort of pubic grooming. Yeah. Sorry to bring this up. But, um, do you think that there's an idea about how feminism ought to be that in itself is quite prescriptive? to how women should look and behave mm-hmm. and how do we deal with that thanks <coughs> alright so the first question was about the internet and I, I covered this a little bit in the talk but maybe didn't go into this enough the idea, I mean I first rediscovered feminism through the internet right? I first realised that there was an enormous community of people who would of difficult bitches who felt and thought like me out there because of the internet, because of things like feministing and the F word and Pandagon and communities like that. And I think that everywhere women are finding each other and talking to each other about politics in a new and important way because of because the internet allows us to. All right? And that is important in organising women's protests. But as I said, the internet is the most violently misogynist public space that we have right now. This is a serious, enormous problem. Women are being chased out of public space online. Women are being chased out of organising online because we're afraid, because we're made to feel afraid of violence, of retribution, either physical violence or psychic violence, bullying on the internet is incredibly easy and people, un- people believe that it is okay. People believe that sexual violence on the internet is not real violence. And at the moment, I feel like we're approaching a tipping point. We're not there quite yet, but I feel like we're approaching a tipping point in terms of women's right to be in that space. I mean, we need to take back the net like we have a take back the night because, um, oh, I, I, just, I just made that up. Let's copyright it. Brilliant. Um, we really do. We need a fight back from women in those spaces. Um, there, I've, I've done uh, a bit of writing about how um, about uh, sexism online, um, but I can, if, if you'd like to come and talk to me afterwards, I can point you in the direction of a couple of campaigns. And um, the oh god, the pubic grooming thing. Um, I have successfully resisted over 
now five years of writing articles about feminism, I believe I, I have successfully resisted writing an article about pubic hair. All right? And you would not believe how many times I've been asked to do so. Because, um, right, um, people seem to believe that feminism is about body hair, and it's not. <laughs> and um, and I, I, don't, I don't want to have a go at you. I think this is, like, this is... It's, it's important because we keep coming back to this thing. But I actually had, last week, I had a friend who I was meant to be meeting for coffee text me and saying, oh, I'll be five minutes late, I was getting waxed, you probably wouldn't approve. It's like, what? What is it about me writing about women's economic freedom which implies that I have an opinion on the state of your bush, right? <laughs> I don't care. I don't care. Do what you want. You know, I think there is, there is absolutely, having said that, there is, there, is a, there is a nice, neat link between how we're meant to feel about our bodies intimately. Our bodies are important. Our bodies are important as political spaces. Our, and the implication to control our bodies and to you know, keep ourselves neat and tidy is a very important <coughs> mirror for how we're meant to behave socially. There is, there is absolutely a link between that. But feminism needs to stop talking about fannies as if they are, at, they, are, they are somehow removed from the rest of women's issues. I believe that, I think if one in ten of the articles and campaigns done recently about women's right to shave or not shave their pubic hair have been devoted to cuts in single mothers' benefits, we would be a lot further on than we are now. And this is, not, this is absolutely not to say that bodies aren't important. I wrote a book about why bodies and beauty and cultural ideas are important. But the... Um, actually, there's, there's a lot more I want to say about that, but I feel like I should take another question. So can, can I come back to you a little bit later? All right, thanks. OK. Um, we've got this woman here with her hand up, and... This is a bloke over there, let's uh, Where? Ah, this bloke, yep. Thank you. Um, hey, um, I just wondered what you thought, going back to the um, internet, about um, the pro-men's right movement and their attack on feminism for, <laughs> um, for like, um, boys doing worse in schools than girls and statistics mm -hmm. like that, and the complete yeah, yep. nightmare that's online mm -hmm. with mm -hmm. pro-men's rights. <laughs> okay, and now this gentleman. Hi. Uh, I think you made a very compelling case for not decoupling feminism from socialism and, and anti-capitalism. But I wanted to hear your thoughts a little bit about people who, <clears throat> who might identify with liberalism or the political right who do want to support various forms of female rebellion and might feel like feminists mm -hmm. and see if you feel that there's a space for them or if you think they are, that that form of female rebellion is inherently delusional. Mm -hmm. Thanks. All right, so men's rights groups, oh, my God. Um, I, the, well, it's funny how, I mean, I advise you not to look for men's rights groups on the Internet because you'll, what you'll find is a astonishing catalogue of horrible sexism. Men's rights seems to be code, and it's very upsetting for us. This, look, this is a space where we can attack women. 
and attack feminism. But there is this idea now that women have come so far that they're actually ahead of men because they're now doing better in school. Funnily enough, um, men did, sorry, boys did better than girls at A-levels this year, and this was reported as, oh, thank God we're back to normal. You know, but <laughs> for some reason, when every other year when men do better than women in school, it's not, a, it's not an issue. Um, but you come to something very, very important, which is that there is women's rights are being used right now and used deliberately in, on some spectres of, of the political conversation to imply that the fight is not between rich and poor, it's between men and women. And if women have made X gain, then they must have made it at the expense of men. And if men are having trouble finding work, are having trouble in school, are, if they're unemployed and depressed, that must be because women have got all the advantages that they suddenly don't have. This is a really dangerous thing, and I'm actually sorry I didn't mention it more in my talk. Thank you for bringing it up. It's the idea that women's rights are somehow not just outside, not, not just um, irrelevant to the rest of the social struggle, but actually are... They're, they're actually not helping men at all. They're actually a threat to men's rights. And this is the classic divide and conquer, the classic example of trying to distract attention from the real social divisions, which have always been, in a deeply gendered way, between rich and poor. Um, it's, and it's really, really important that we fight that wherever we see it, because it, it, just, it comes up again and again with men, with uh, people, and people being duped into thinking that, oh, it's the feminist's fault that we haven't got what we want in life. It's the women's fault. I, sorry, it makes me very angry. And um, the, uh, well, I think that any feminist who has an, uh, the barest idea of what that means has got to be a socialist, right? I'm, that's just my personal opinion here. It's, it's not, I'm not taking in the whole history of the women's movement. But I think it is, it is possible up to a certain point to support women's right to live free from sexual violence and, free for, and, and to f live free from domestic drudgery and to live independently, but only up to a certain point. What we have, what we have seen over the last 30 years is a triumph of neoliberal <coughs> feminism, of right-wing feminism, which has, as I said accepted a trade-off over the right of all women to live freer, better lives in exchange for the personal social liberation for very few. It's a sex-in-the-city feminism. You know, as long as a few wealthy white women in New York can fuck whoever they want and have their vibrators and their beautiful shoes, then the rest of us must be free too. That's the ultimate stopping point of liberal, libertarian feminism. And I'm not saying that it's not useful up to a point, but it is a very small part of the overall struggle for women's equality, which has to be economic and structural, I think. Okay, okay let's have a couple more. So um, at the front, and then I'll just take that woman towards the back, and then we'll come to the people at the front. Thanks, Robin. Um, <coughs> you probably knew this was coming, Laurie, but regarding Suzanne Moore's recent piece, sorry, um, recent piece in the New Statesman, mm -hmm. um, I thought she said some very important things about women's rage. Yep. And um, 
I was wondering how you feel about the fact that it's being overshadowed by Julie Burchill mm-hmm. and um, allegations of transphobia. And um, I was also wondering what you thought about this kind of brewing war between feminists of like the old guard and mm. trans activists because mm-hmm. it seems like they should be on the same side, but now they're positioned against no, each other. Can I take that by itself, actually? Um, that's important. All right, uh, Suzanne Moore, who is um, actually a friend of mine in my and she's been very supportive to me, and it's been really upsetting over the last <coughs> week and a half to see this fiasco go off. And actually, that's the mindset in which I wrote some of this talk in which I've been thinking about all of these issues, which is the feminist movement itself seems unable to deal with the new structure of gender and power and how it works. Uh, Suzanne Moore's original article for The New Statesman was uh, about the importance of women's rage, and I thought it was brilliant. Actually, I thought it was really, really important, very, very incisive, and Suzanne at her best, doing her best um, uh, job of polemicising women's struggle. Uh, When she's good, she's great. But she made an offhand joke about transsexual people, which then escalated into a horrible series of transphobic slurs on Twitter. And then that became an article by Julie Birchall, which was just one of the most shocking pieces of hate speech I've ever read in a national newspaper, really. I mean, leaving aside the Daily Mail, which I don't believe is actually a newspaper, because that... That, that requires news, you know. <laughs> but um, it's... The infighting within the feminist movement right now has always been there. This is... Um, it's one of the things that destroyed um, and made the movement collapse under its own weight in the 80s. It's uh, arguments not just over transsexual... the status of transsexual women within the movement, but also sex workers. The idea that feminists and particularly bourgeois cis feminists are the ones who get to decide what a woman is, what kind of work a woman should do and how women should live their lives. I think, um, and the transphobic feminists know they've lost the argument. They know they've lost the argument, which is one of the reasons they're so angry right now. About four or five years ago, Julie Bindle wrote a very similar article in The Guardian which didn't cause the fuss it has now because the world is changing. People who are not cissexual, people who transition, people who, and also people who are genderqueer, people who don't believe that their gender identity fits into, a, into the given spectrums of male and female, those people are demanding a voice, demanding representation. I think that's a very important thing. And I think, as, as I've written before, that it's vital to feminism because if feminism is about anything, it's about the belief that biology isn't destiny that the body you're born in and the genetics you're born with should not determine how you live your life, how you dress, what you look like, where you go. And for me, that's one of the reasons that trans activism should be at the heart of the women's movement and people who attack... People who attack transsexual women and transsexual feminists are on the wrong side of history. It's the absolute... I actually... um, I was at a women's meeting about two years ago where I, I re- I'm not going to say who, but quite a prominent feminist thinker in the UK told me that we had to ban trans women from feminist meetings because what would happen if we didn't is that men would invade the meetings 
dressed as women and try to subtly disrupt the <coughs> And I was like, God, no, you don't need men dressed as women to disrupt the agenda. You're doing it yourself. Can you not see what's happening? And it's just, for me, there's no... I absolutely believe in the need to stop and to do away with infighting, but I also believe that there are questions of justice and equality that we can't sidestep, and the way to, the way to build a better more powerful feminist movement isn't by sidestepping this. We have to go through it. And we're going, we've gone through it this week, and it's been bloody exhausting. Sorry, that was quite long, but that's why I wanted to take it. Okay, so... This oh, I think we had two other questions to be uh, Well, oh, there's yeah. one person here who's been waiting. Uh, hi, Laurie. Um, I'm just wondering, what's your take on uh, Fifty Shades of Grey? Is it, um, as some critics say, mm-hmm. a paradigm of sexual liberation and awareness for women? Or is it, on the other hand, something that reinforces negative gender stereotypes and glorifies female submission? What's your take? Thank you for that. Really, Oh, brilliant. Oh, okay, so Fifty Shades of Grey is porn, right? That's the most important thing to remember about it. It's pornography, and it's pornography that women are reading. Oh, no. And it's... Um, a, I'm not going to ask you if you've read it, because you're not going to be honest with me. But I've read it, I actually read it twice, just, be, just for, to make sure I had the right take on it. Research, <laughs> research. And I read the sequel, research. Important research. Um, but it's, it's pornography. It's not particularly good pornography, but then what pornography is good pornography? I mean, like, you don't... Honestly, I really want to see the day that some, some you know... Women, woman critic, austere woman critic comes on and, and criticises uh, all the dreadful, sexist, violent, male, por- male-oriented pornography on the internet because, you know, the decor, the decor in the room isn't very good. Or, you know, it's not shot, it doesn't look beautiful. You know, there's a cat in the background. It's, um, it, it's, not, it's not about aesthetics, it's something to wank to. And the idea, yeah, I'm sorry, it's, and the idea that this is terrible and women shouldn't be doing it, that's what all the pointing and laughing over Fifty Shades of Grey is about. And the idea, I, I actually, I find it quite interesting because it's part of this, this, this S&M thing keeps coming up, this idea that, oh, Feminism has actually gone too far and women, you know, they actually want to be tied up and beaten up by bankers. That's what, that's what we want. Um, and it's just ridiculous. It's just, it's, it's, it's so ridiculous and it actually, uh, the fact that it is, is, so, is so silly is what makes it all right that we're having this discussion rather than just deeply irritating that we're still talking about this. But the interesting thing about Fifty Shades of Grey, which um, none of you have read it so you won't know, but just in case, so for those, for all of you who haven't read it, um, the main, the Christian Grey studly stunt dick of the story is um, the interesting thing about him and, and those characters and all the spin-off books is that they're all multi-millionaires. They're all the richest man in the world. And um, like literally, like he, he's, oh my God, at just 27, he already owns 18 million companies. Like, he bought me an Audi. You know, it's, it's really, it, it's, it's a fantasy of economic subservience Rather, the yes, and actually, in Fifty Shades of Grey, there's like in the first bit, there's like one spanking scene. It's not that hardcore, um, but what there is is a lot of money being spent and a lot of oh, I feel bad about being bought these eighteen cars and this enormous diamond, diamond the size of my head, but I will accept it. <laughs> and it's it's that that's the fantasy. It's the economic 
idea, and I, 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 kind of, I wish people would write about that more. Like, it's the idea of economic subservience and, and that, because now you're seeing things like the sugar daddy culture coming back. And I, I know of... Um, I know of a lot of women who are involved in that thing as a way to make ends meet. You know, the, uh, anyway, next, next question. Sorry. So, <laughs> so well, we're getting close to the end, so we've got two questions down here. Can I just see... Um, right. I, can I just take three questions? Can I take um, Hillary, then this uh, gentleman here, and the woman in the second row? Well, hang on. First of all... Um, oh, OK. Oh, <laughs> Okay, this one, this one, this one. Uh, how do you feel about um, uh, like the fatphobic um, um, government like obesity epidemic initiative and um, the importance it's put on weight rather than health and mm-hmm. Thank you. Um, should, I take, should I take them all at once? Well, we, yeah. I think we perhaps take them all together. Yeah, and, then, and that's okay. probably the right, last round. Hi. Yeah, I was really interested in the point you were making about how um, feminism's got sort of severed from mm-hmm. socialism and the wider movement. I just wanted to ask a, a, a just sort of empirical question about that. And that's, you know, you talk very, um, in some ways, shockingly about the uh, sort of sexism within the um, student movement and within Occupy. And I just wonder if you could say something about how women, well, and men, have organised in response to that, in in those movements. I mean, because in some ways the earlier women's movement was, in one sense, it was um, partly in response to the sexism in the left. We got together initially in the toilets, you know, Uh then then it became a movement, um, taking on bigger issues. And I just wondered what the experience has been now, and also um, how the movements responded. Have women organised autonomously within the movements, or what's their relationship with anti-sexist men? Um, what's that sort of question? Uh, oh yeah, it was uh, something that came, actually quite similar to hers, but it came about. You mentioned the gentleman who apologised for you putting your bag on his posters, um, and the talk of the uh, the men's rights movements. Yeah. Um, both had a kind of the same kind of thought to them, which was it's very much them and us, regardless of who you are. It's mm-hmm. the, or the feminists, either they're terrible and they're trampling on our men's rights, or it's very much a, oh, they're, they're trying to sort of grow and we should leave that pretty flower alone. It was very much, uh, I know you've talked a lot about sort of separation of the feminist movement from sort of mm-hmm. socialism and equality and how it's very much seen as kind of you're fighting to take back something rather than this sort of idea that it's still seen as very them and us. And actually, the talk about the trans. Um, the transgender and everything, sort of, how do you think that's going to affect the perception of this kind of them and us idea of this? There's two genders and, and move on beyond that. And mm. as that starts to fade away, this very much two party sort of political fighting, it'll suddenly be actually gender's not, not that simple. And as, you're, as you have to expand to understand that, you have to expand to understand that a lot of these issues that are people fight for in women's rights actually aren't just, you know, men feel pigeonholed as well. and it, it, it's a big society thing, and how do you think that's going to change, I guess, as these issues are becoming not just a, a one gender issue, but a whole whole world issue? Um, so it's not really sort of, yeah, kind of, it's kind of a question, but it's kind of confusing. No, that, that was also brave of you, thanks. Um, um, right, so the obesity question is, I'll, I'll come to you quickly, and I'd, I'd love to talk about it afterwards as well, but it's, it's, it's obviously disgusting that people, the idea of 
Has anybody seen the thing where they're trying to take welfare benefits away from people who are overweight if they don't go to the gym? Right. Fat hatred is in is absolutely linked to class hatred, in particularly in the UK, and it's also linked to gender hatred. The idea, but in both in both cases, fear of fat and overweight women and fear and fat of fat and overweight poor people. It's the idea that oh my God, they're taking up too much space. You know, we have to. It's not about health at all. It's about control. Any time that any, you hear anybody being told to be smaller and restrict themselves. It's about control. It's about control for women. It's about control for people who are not rich. It's, that's just what it is, and it's disgusting. I mean, nobody is telling, forgive me, this is mean, but nobody is telling Eric Pickles to lose weight, right? Is, 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 he, not, is he not having health problems? I don't know. If, if, other peop- if people who live on council estates and are overweight are having health problems, then surely he is, but it's not, it's not talked of in those terms. It's fear. It's fear of people with... Fear of fat is very easily translated into fear of power. Um, and the um, Hillary who asked that question is um, Hillary Wainwright, who is the author of Beyond the Fragments, which, is, uh, which you should all read because it's really important. One of the authors, I'm sorry, with Sheila. Um, but the, um, the question of what's happening within the left right now is really interesting in terms of how we deal with sexual violence. Well, sexual violence has become the flashpoint, actually. There is not yet, we have not yet started talking about women's role as organisers within the movement, whether or not women with children or caring responsibilities can join the movement. All those questions are yet to come. The flashpoint right now is sexual violence. And Hillary is completely right that the initial 1970 onwards wave of the feminist movement was in many ways a response to sexism within the left of the 1960s and the, and the idea of sexual revolution in the 1960s, which really seemed to be sexual liberation only for men. As I understand it, I wasn't there. But um, right now what I'm seeing is, and, and again I can't go into specific cases, but what I'm seeing is attempts to deal through internal bureaucracy with cases of sexual violence, which is the first, and those attempts have, not, not, not that they're bad attempts, but those attempts I've seen them split movements apart. This is a very small example, but right now the Socialist Workers' Party is breaking into pieces because of a rape allegation at the centre against a senior party figure. And rather than being reported to police, this allegation was dealt with at the top of the party. I don't know if you've come across this. You probably... um, This was dealt with by this guy's mates getting around and deciding that actually he didn't do that rape. It's all right. And actually, even if he did, it's it's not as important (coughs) as, you know, the, the bigger struggle. And I've seen that kind of thing happen on many, many occasions, people being unable... I mean, Assange is a typical case, all right? We are unable to hold in our heads the idea that we want freedom for women... women, We want women to be protected from rape and have sexual and social freedom, and we also want all of these other kinds of freedom as well. We're being told that it's one or the other, and it's really, really difficult right now. And I, I don't have an answer for you. It's really difficult and depressing, and I wish I could stop writing about it. Um, but I, I wish there was. I wish we could move on. And um, the last question was about um, the gender binary and men's role within uh, in talking about and, and the them and us idea. And yeah, the, the gender more the more we question the gender binary, 
the more the easier it becomes to talk about social roles because right now we live in a really binary identified culture we actually in some ways live in a more binary identified culture than we had say 10 years ago gender roles are being hyped up the problem is not hypersexualization the problem is gender roles being being hyped up people being expected to perform social roles which even if we could afford to perform them, we wouldn't want to. And that includes men. You know, this idea that you have to be sensitive and caring and good feminist, but you also have to be, you know, manly and have a job, which is hard enough for any young person right now, and you have to be strong and unemotional. It's really difficult. I'm seeing... Um, and, uh, and a lot of the time, it comes down to personal emotional experience, which is a, uh, which is a funny way to end this talk, but I think it's, it's important... I, a, lot of, a lot of what I'm seeing in, in personal um, comrade relationships I have and within movements is people coming to an understanding of gender and justice through their own experience because obviously our, our, our ideas about gender and sexuality are always conditioned by what we experience ourselves. People finding that trauma and find, people finding trauma and heartbreak and love and sex really difficult to deal with because the frameworks that we've received for how we should perform our gender roles are massively different from how they... Sh- I mean, has anybody come across Nice Guys of OK Cupid? Yeah, yeah, you guys have seen that. But the idea, it's so this Tumblr where, um, which was set up to, I think, in some ways meanly shame these people who had posted on this online dating site... Um, you know, oh, women, women never want to go out with me. I hate those bitches. Was basically the the overtones of it. And but actually, that's what I'm seeing. A lot of people's, and particularly men's problems with the women's movement, often are traceable back to mutual frustration on both sides. The enormous social and cultural structures which prevent us talking to each other and persuade us that we are that there are two genders and they are set up in a permanent state of war. And within the occupied spaces, within the protest movements I've seen opening up, I think we're just starting to question that and we have to keep doing it because it's the most important thing. So that's it. Well, thank you very much. I I just want to make two points in closing. The first is just a practical one to draw your attention to the remainder of the talks in our series, and in particular the talk next Tuesday by James Jasper about the role of emotion in social movements. And secondly, I want to thank our speaker, Laurie Penny. I mean, I think you've given us a remarkable talk. I mean, in your own words, you've taken us back to a time on the edge of memory that never really existed and in particular, I think you've done a great job of trying to recouple the story of the women's movement with the story of the socialist movement in particular and more generally the story of movements for human liberation. And you've gone on, as I've understood it, to set out what that might mean for us during the great surge of protest which we're living through at the moment. So can you join me in thanking Laurie Penny? Thank you.